This is the Monday, February 29th, Leap Day 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore Hello and welcome I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. You can also catch us on iTunes, Spreaker, and many other personal audio outlets. You can even tune us in using the iHeartRadio app or on most new model car stereos, where you can listen to iHeartRadio just like you listen to any other radio, right there on the dashboard. Of course, today we're not driving a car, but a time machine, fashioned to look like James Bond's Aston Martin. We're speeding back to the height of the Cold War, and our guide on this journey is Patty Hayes. His book is Queen of Spies, Daphne Park, Britain's Cold War Spymaster. Mr. Hayes was born in County Cork, Ireland, and educated at Harvard University. He's since spent half a century in the intelligence world, and has served as a constituency director of elections twice back home in Dublin. You can learn more about his work at pattyhayes.com. Until this book... No biography has ever been written about Daphne Park's extraordinary contribution to the crown. Adventures such as being beaten and thrown into a pit in Congo, talking her way out of an execution, swimming the chilly Volga River to escape the KGB in Moscow, and holding station in Hanoi during the height of the Vietnam War. Nonplussed, even when literally looking down the barrel of a gun, the woman friends called Daffers said, I must have been arrested and condemned to be shot several times. It was a hazard that I got used to. Daphne Park was Britain's top woman spy, the most senior lady in MI6, a spitfire who people said once met was never forgotten. She was the real thing, not Hollywood, saying, quote, I have always looked like a cheerful, fat missionary. It wouldn't be any use if you went around looking sinister, would it? All right, now that we've been briefed, let's meet Patty Hayes and learn about Daphne Park, Queen of Spies. I'm on the line with Patty Hayes calling across the Atlantic from Dublin, Ireland, which, by the way, is the non-American city I visited the most times, so I'm jealous of anybody who gets to wake up in Ireland every morning. He's here to talk about his book, Queen of Spies, Daphne Park, Britain's Cold War Spymaster. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with the History Author Show, sir. Delighted, Dean. Delighted. Um, good morning to you. Um, sometimes we wake up to a little bit more rain than we might like. However, (laughs) (laughs) wait 15 minutes, right? And uh, they say it changes. So we're going to begin now with Daphne Park. Her story begins in Africa. How does her early life impact the woman we come to know through reading Queen of Spies? I I think really that her early life was extraordinarily influential on on the woman that she turned out to be. She lived in Africa, Dean, for the first 11 years of her life, and they're probably the most formative for all of us. She lived in a tin-roofed shack 
500 miles upriver from Dar es Salaam and Tanganyika, as it was at the time. It had no running water, no sewage, uh, no electricity. It was a very, very tough, hard scrabble life. And it formed and shaped her. It toughened her up and, and, and also left, I think, other legacies too. The tough is something that definitely comes across in Queen of Spies. You see this woman who, or girl, really, she hasn't flushed an indoor toilet uh, before until she leaves Africa, I believe. So it seems as if this is good for a spy life where you're going to be sent all over the place and you have to just be able to adapt. You have to sort of become a chameleon. You have to not, of course, complain, not be a target for things. She goes all over the world and the start that she gets, though, is not because of this ability to sort of deal with the hard scrabble life. She gets her start for the reason many women did. The men were off fighting World War II. But the intelligence field at that time, even that remained very closed to women, didn't it? It did. It was extraordinarily close. I mean, there was, if you like, there was a hiatus, I think, really, in World War II when an awful lot of jobs that had previously been reserved for men were, were, had to be opened up to women by definition. Uh, and then when the war ended, there was a sort of a, a movement, if you like, to close the doors again and, and revert to what had been. And of course, that rarely happens. But the intelligence services was particularly so. It was very sort of chauvinistic. It was militaristic as well. Its attitude to women really was fairly negative. But one of her qualities was an extraordinary persistence. And, and so uh, she sort of looked around at the end of the war she had a few connections. She applied to join the, the intelligence service and was turned down. And she didn't accept that rejection. She used her wartime connections and got sent off to Vienna in a small technical intelligence unit that was chasing down German military secrets. And while in Vienna, she sort of approached the intelligence service again through the back door. She came across a defector, passed the defector onto the intelligence service, and use that to leverage herself into the service in 1948. It's quite extraordinary. She couldn't put, obviously, all this experience on her CV or her resume, and that's one of the challenges that she has. She's not rewarded for her service, really, in, a, in any public way. She isn't given the Defense Medal, for instance, you mentioned in the book, yes. which even Churchill's secretaries received. Uh, it reminded me of the Wrens at Bletchley Park and men like Alan Turing, who people thought they were just had an easy war, that they didn't really do anything. They had to keep mum. They signed the Official Secrets Act so they could never speak about it to anybody. So this is how she stays in the game. But she also overcomes something that none of those Wrens had to, and that was a black mark that was on her resume due to a fellow named Colonel Spooner, her commanding officer. This is in the run-up to D-Day. Uh, she has to make a complaint. She has to kind of stand up to him, and that ends up with her reputation smeared, and because she's an intel, she can't defend herself. So tell us how she sort of deals with that and what the story is, because that's amazing that she overcame that. It was quite extraordinary, and she was sent to a place called Milton Hall in, in early 1944. She was part of the training for the Jedburgh teams. And the Jeds were teams of three special forces. They were amongst the very first special forces that were going to be dropped into France in the days immediately ahead of D-Day and essentially liaise with the French resistance and cause mayhem behind the German lines. They were the top troopers at the time. She was about 22, 23 years of age, and she was teaching them codes. The CO was a guy called Colonel Spooner, who was a sort of Indian Army type, martinet, a very, very sort of strict disciplinarian, and not really uh, an ideal choice, perhaps, for special forces. 
And she went down to London one day and she spoke to a colleague about it and he said, you should complain. So she did complain. And of course, that really went against military discipline. She was summoned to a court-martial by her unit and her sergeant's stripes were literally torn from the sleeves of her battle dress and she was reduced to the ranks. And quite extraordinarily, three months later, two of the Jeds, one American called Lucien Conine, who later had a tremendous career in the CIA, came to London and they needed a dispatching officer sent to Algiers to send them into France for their mission. Uh, and they persuaded Daphne's boss to sort of elevate her back, make her a lieutenant, make her dispatching officer and send her off to Algiers. And that's what she did. It was quite extraordinary that she'd made such an impact on those really tough, hard men just in the couple of months she'd been training them that they sought her out despite her disgrace and got her as their briefing officer in Algiers. And she dispatched 18 teams of jets into France in August of 1944. The reason that she complains, by the way, it's nothing personal on her. It's because she's worried about the men that are under her. And here she is, this young woman. I found it incredible that she would have been one of the people that was trusted with the information about Ultra and about the Didi landings. But explain what it was, what the nature of her complaint was for people. Well, basically, Spooner's idea of training of these training these soldiers was to have them parading at six o'clock in the morning and marching up and down and learning how to salute and do good rifle drills. And these were special forces. And their idea, they had no problem getting up at six o'clock in the morning. But what they wanted was training in nighttime ambushes, in silent killing, in, in firing weapons, explosives, creating booby traps, the type of, of special forces training that would exist today, not uh, learning military drill. And uh, as Spooner would say, comporting themselves like proper soldiers. And in fact, it was the American element in the Jets that found that particularly difficult to take. And that was really one of the reasons why Spooner was kicked upstairs and uh, replaced with a, a much more effective commanding officer. So she gets what she wants there, which is sort of a recurring theme or what she thinks is right. Anyway, again, it wasn't a personal slight or anything like that. And she really had no choice because he's her commanding officer. The normal procedure would have been to report your commanding officer, but there's no way to complain about him to somebody else. So she faces that, but she manages to come out of it. She has a pretty good run of, I don't know if you'd call it luck, but she's just persistent and combines that with seizing her opportunities. It's very different today, obviously, in the SIS, but you explain a little bit about that in the book. So what changes did she bring being this pioneer? And what's the SIS like today for women compared to her day? I think that it's much more balanced between the two genders. Now, that's been a slow enough process now. Uh, but I think certainly over the last 10 or 15 years, it would have accelerated. So it's in their terms of their attitude to women, in terms of recruitment, in terms of their operational postings, it really is completely unrecognizable. It's also as an organization, it's far more accountable. It takes far more cognizance of the political realities and so on. In the sort of the 10, 15 years after the war, it more or less did really what it felt was right for Britain. And it didn't really pay too much heed to what the government of the day might want. And now it's, it's much more integrated into policy, much as the uh, CIA and so on would be in the United States. You say at pattyhayes.com, your website, that the element of espionage that most excites your passion is human spying, known as human, person-to-person -person relationships, getting along, overcoming these things that we just talked about, Daphne Park having. 
So how she felt about the people who cast sort of the spy business as this stabbing your friends constantly. Author John Lacare, his description of intelligence as a world of cold betrayal. What did Daphne Park think of his opinion? Oh, she she was she was outraged by it. And, and that was one of the things that we talked about when I met her in the House of Lords that that afternoon. She said that trust is at the core, at the heart of intelligence service operations, trust between a case officer, which she was, and her agents on the ground, that there had to be this trust, two-way trust for it to work. And then within the service itself, there also had to be trust amongst colleagues because of, of the nature of what they did. And uh, La Carre's, as you say, portrayal of everybody sort of going around stabbing each other in the back really annoyed her and, and annoyed her intensely. She didn't have a, a good opinion of him at all. And I think that's something he is aware of. And he has sort of said, I think, in some regards, that he wrote what he felt he needed to write to make interesting books. And he wasn't trying to write a, a factual description of the service. But the two of them sort of became intertwined, I think. In Queen of Spies, you also discuss the real-life events of the Suez crisis, and you say that's the most puzzling of Daphne Park's career. Describe that moment when it seems the Soviets are about to intervene against Britain and France and Egypt, and the United States opposes this. So it is a very strange event. So describe her role. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary because you had two events taking place in parallel. In Hungary and Budapest, you had a, a popular revolution by young students against uh, the Russian rule over Hungary. And then some thousands of miles away in Egypt, you have the British and the, and the French forces invading Egypt to protect basically Britain's claim to the ownership and running of the Suez Canal. And of course, the United States was sort of sitting back and looking at these two events, which whilst they were separate, also were linked by virtue of the Cold War. And the Soviets saw the invasion of, of Egypt by the British and France as an opportunity for them to ramp up their activities in Hungary. And they also started to threaten war against Britain. And they would send an expeditionary force to Egypt, which would land on the ground. And it's obvious if Russian troops were on the ground in Egypt, then war between Britain and Russia would have been the outcome. And so Daphne Park said later that she was asked to travel to the Crimean ports undercover to see if she could see at first hand whether the Russians were preparing to send such a force. Because obviously, if you're going to send a force of maybe 50 or 100,000 men and, and the associated uh, artillery and port and logistics and so on, you're going to be leaving signs. And so she talked about that having to make such a journey. Now, this is a thousand miles undercover in the Soviet Union in 1956. And we've not been able to find out any evidence other than a couple of comments she made as to whether or not that trip ever took place and what intelligence it produced. All we can say for sure is that when she finished her posting in Moscow, her quote unquote reputation was made, uh, according to a very close colleague who told me that. And she was stationed in Moscow at the time. She was. One of the early exciting stories that you tell about how she uses, in that case, the Russian knowledge of how the SIS does things or how that they don't use women. And so when she'll walk with a man and then he peels off and the, the KGB agents just follow him and she notices this and says, oh, they think he's the important one. So it sort of would free her up. She managed to exploit things like that. But there's many of those moments where it's hard to find out what actually happened. We talked about 
that a little bit off the air about how spies are hard to write about, how it's hard to get that in. So you have to really track it down. And you said like criminals. Yes, they're a little similar to criminals in that way. <laughs> yes, they are. I mean, um, you know, when, when, when most criminals go out in the morning, they, they don't turn around and, and make it plain. Well, I'm going down into town and I'm going to meet Fred and we're going to have a chat about robbing that bank around the corner. And spies are the same. I mean, typically, uh, if they're married, they, they will tell their husband or wife that they work for the intelligence service, but they will rarely go beyond that. And the intelligence services, of course, for whom they work, also go out of their way to make sure that what they do remains secret. Uh, the British intelligence service has an absolute blanket ban on any activities about its members being discussed pretty well forever, unless in very, very exceptional circumstances, which didn't obtain here. So you're constantly looking to meet friends of friends, people who might hear this, looking at that. And given the fact that it's sometime after Daphne has died and so on, I found that there were a number of people that were prepared to tell me what she had been doing. I was saying to you about the criminal comparison, not that we want to insult spies, no. but that it's also hard then to go to their friends because they're also usually in the business. The people who would know, they have their own secrets. So the fact you were able to put together a book with so many details, you're frank about the places where you have to sort of speculate, but you are also honest about sometimes there's just no record. You said that maybe her motto would have been leave only footprints in the sand and so many of those have washed away. But you were able to find a lot. Was there one place that was really frustrating to you that you just wish you could have uncovered about her career? Yeah, I think, Dean, um, recruitment. When an agent, an intelligence officer uh, such as Daphne, when they're posted to an overseas embassy, which is the, is the norm, uh, they would have three or four sort of things that they would focus on. Uh, one of them is recruiting new agents. The other would be running the existing agents and, and so on. And finding out about recruitment, that is probably the most closely guarded secret of every intelligence service. Because literally, you know, you can't have a situation where everybody knows that the assistant foreign minister is really working for the CIA or working for British intelligence because yeah. he or she would lose their lives pretty quickly. So, so they really guard that. And Daphne was a good recruiter. I know she was, and I'd love to have learned a little bit more about her recruitments. I do get a, get some recruitment stories in, but I would I know she was doing an awful lot more than I was able to dig up. But I live in hope on that one. Yeah, it'll sort of be revealed at some point, hopefully. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> My guest is Patty Hayes, and the book is Queen of Spies, Daphne Park, Britain's Cold War Spymaster. His website is pattyhayes.com, Publishers Weekly writes of Queen of Spies, Hayes is open about his own speculations, given the still-classified nature of much of this material, but he successfully conveys the inspiring nature of Park's personal story and achievements, offering an informative account of the Cold War and the workings of the super-secret SIS. And that kind of gets to what we were just saying about how much of this is still hidden and trying to go and speak to people. Did you have to go through any vetting to speak, or were people pretty open to speaking to an author? They knew who you were. Yeah, I, 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 and it works in these situations. Getting your first person to talk to you is the most difficult because obviously, you know, that's the, really the, the bridge that, that you have to pass. And then after that, it then tends to maybe you get a reference or a referral from somebody and they say, you know, Patty, you know, why don't you give such and such a call? I think he might be able to help you or she. And then when you call them, you can then turn around and say, oh, by the way, I, I'm calling you because... Uh, John suggested that maybe we could have a chat. 
And then that builds. And also what builds, Dean, is if you have, as you start to get more information, then the nature of your conversations with people changes because it's no longer, well, you know, tell me about Daphne. It's, well, listen, I know that when she was in Moscow, she did some pretty interesting recruitment, but there was one I was particularly keen on. Maybe you could help me here. And they have a look at you and they say, yeah, well, maybe I can give you a little bit on this one. And as long as you don't tell anybody, it was me that told you. Yeah. <laughs> so there was another lot of that I can tell you. <laughs> And then you could sort of ask informed questions and hopefully piece it together, which you you definitely do. I was impressed with how much it read like a spy thriller, but obviously anchored in real life. Daphne Park, part of being a spy, I guess, part of the things we think of in a thriller is death. And she got death threats. She just accepts it as an occupational hazard. There's one story in 1959 when she deploys to Congo. And this is a very important time, a very important very big country. You're right in Queen of Spies that whoever controlled that country could control much of sub-Saharan Africa. So there's a whole bunch of different world powers there. At one point during while she's stationed there, a mob tries to drag her out of her car. So tell that story because it's a little funny. Yeah. I mean, what you had at, at the time, the, 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 she was based in Leopoldville, which was the capital, and it was an extraordinarily dangerous place. Um, and, and there were rampaging mobs around the place and they were looking for people who were ethnically different to them. And if they came across somebody from, from another tribe, they would just attack them there and then. And they had a huge mistrust or dislike of, of Europeans coming. It had been a sort of a Belgian colony and, and it had been ruled in a pretty tough way. So any European that was walking around the streets was seen by, by these mobs as a potential enemy. And Daphne was driving around. She had a, a little Citroen car and she was driving around and suddenly she was surrounded by a mob. They would have been waving machetes and screaming at her and rocking the car. They demanded that she get out. And, and for whatever reason, it's quite extraordinary. She had the presence of mind to pull the roof back and, and try to wriggle out through the roof and then allowed herself to be jammed. She was quite plump and she would admit to being quite plump. And so she sort of got herself jammed in the, in, in the roof and started to giggle. <laughs> and they looked at her and it could have gone either way and it just went her way. And, and, and they said, oh, well, go on. They, they waved her on and she dropped down again and off she drove. And by my count, she came close to death five times in the Congo over a period of about 12 months. Her opposite number in the CIA, Larry Devlin, also came pretty close to death a couple of times himself too. It was very much an occupational hazard in the Congo at that time. But she had this extraordinary uh, sang Freud. She really had Dean. Uh, she faced it down. And where she got it from? <laughs> well, the early days, I guess, maybe in Africa. Who knows? She's just one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when she's at, there's a firing squad at another point. They say they're going to shoot her, another mob. And she says, well, I'm on my way. Let me just go and I'll come back and you can shoot me then. It's like Bugs Bunny and Daffy <laughs> Duck. And they, they do it. They go along with it. It's insane. Yeah, it's, it, it, that was amazing. That that was in, in, in the airport in Leopoldville. Yeah. And, and uh, they found a tape recording on her. Uh, which in fact had been recorded in the British Embassy and was a speech given to mark Nigerian independence. But they, they, the soldiers listening to it, thought in fact it was 
Lumumba speaking, and, and for that reason, they wanted to kill her. But they, they accepted that explanation and let her go. <laughs> I'll come back later. Who? It's amazing. Who even thinks to say that? But that's the presence of mind she had. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned there about her being plump. This was sort of her cover, almost as if her personal life was her cover. And somebody, I guess, asked her, and she said, well, it wouldn't do to go about looking sinister and sort of shifty eyes or anything. So she didn't look the part of a spy at all, did she? No, she didn't. And and it's funny you saying that because I met quite a lot of them because I mean, I write about spies. So so to write about them, you have to meet them and talk to them. And and the sort of the sort of Hollywood image of the spy being sort of all sort of dark and sinister and, you know, the collar pulled up behind his neck and so on. Most of them are, are, are extremely pleasant, outgoing, sort of charming people. Because they are the qualities that you need to get people to work for your intelligence service and to effectively to betray their country. So you have to be a very, very good people person, if I can use it. It's a bit of a cliche. And Daphne had that. She had that ability to deploy that charm and deploy it, she did. But it was something that she deployed. It wasn't necessarily part of what she was like every day. And speaking of her personal life, a married woman wouldn't have been able to stay at the SIS or even the foreign office. So Daphne Park never married. She never had children. Later in life, she regretted not being closer to her mother. How did she bear the personal costs of the spy life? Yeah, uh, it's a very, very good question. It's a very deep question. When she was in school, and they're using her own words now, when she was 17, she used to read all these sort of school books about, about school girls and stuff like that. And she realized that they all had friends and, and she didn't. So she went about or set about making friends and she made them by getting people to laugh. And I think I came across a number of times in her life that she was not easy to get that close to. She did have a number of affairs. She had one quite late in life. Um, with a married man, and they decided between them not to marry. A very good friend of hers told me that that quite suited her, that it's quite suited her to have an affair and not to have to get married and all that that would mean in terms of, yes, leaving the service, but also um, a very substantial change of life from being a married woman to being single with an affair. Yeah. So did you have that sort of loner streak? Would that be the word maybe, Dean? Or yes. Yeah. Yeah. She was sort of independent, I guess, from that yeah. way she was raised yeah, early on. And her, her yeah. father would be off sometimes. And she just was independent there from those days, maybe. Um, and, and then, as you mentioned, like, uh, she did regret not, in get, not getting closer to her mother. Very much so. She had sort of some sort of romantic idea about her father, she said, that he was away prospecting for gold and stuff like that. And she didn't really credit her mother with the extraordinary sacrifice she had made. And, you know, when Daphne was 11, her mother spent all of the last money she had, and she was poor, on sending her only daughter to London. And, and she didn't see her again till for 14 years. And, and wow. she knew she wasn't going to see her. It wasn't like today, sending someone to London, you could fly there. To get from 500 miles upriver from Dar es Salaam to London was, you know, it, it just couldn't happen. And, and that was a sacrifice Daphne's mother made for her daughter's welfare. And, of course, it was to change Daphne's life completely. And it was only late in, in her mother's life that Daphne realized really what her mother had given up for her. She eventually retires from the service. And this is, I guess, when she has a little more time for reflection and for these 
personal relationships to build them a little, those people that are still around. But she ends up going to oversee Somerville College, which seems like an odd fit for a spy. And in fact, you write in Queen of Spies that for the first time, her confidence weakened. If the Congolese death squads and the KGB agents didn't scare, it's something. What was it about academia that gave her a little bit of pause? When I encountered this, Dean, I, I, you know, I was sort of checking my notes as we'd say, you know, and saying, did, did this really happen? It's funny, it's not quite that unusual. I've, I've spoken to a number, not so many spies, but a number of former ambassadors and so on who have ended up uh, as principal of Oxford or Cambridge colleges. And they seem to find something unsettling about it, Daphne particularly so. First of all, she had a 2-1. Her university degree was a 2-1, second-class honours first. And that would not, in the normal way, entitle you to lecture in, in Oxford or Cambridge. Therefore, she was like in charge, if you like, of people who, who were academics uh, with academic degrees and who sort of looked down their noses at her and sort of made that quite clear, really to the extent that her deputy at the time told me that when Daphne was meeting uh, the academic council, she would write out on a sheet of paper what it was she intended to say, read it out, and engage in no further debate. Which, given her intellect, given her ability with people, given the fact that she was a very, very senior intelligence official in her service, was quite extraordinary. It was quite extraordinary. And uh, she had two paintings of her made in Oxford, the first, she insisted on, on being painted uh, with an open book in her lap because she wanted to, quote unquote, look more academic. So that was a little weakness in her. It's something that she's able to speak to whole rooms full of people. She's able to be a spy, keep her cool. And yet she's intimidated by the idea of going and speaking to academics. It's yeah. something that you said that a lot of these people feel that way. I guess it is like entering any new world. Here she is after doing all these amazing things and it's her first day at school again, yes. but she would stand up to other people. And that, that made me think of this juxtaposition. You tell a story where she's watching a movie and there's, I guess it's a newsreel about World War II and it's typical Russian propaganda or Soviet propaganda, she says at the time. And this Russian colonel leans over to her and he says something she takes exception to. What was that? Yeah. I mean, she did a short stint in Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. You know, she was there, she was sort of acting ambassador for about three or four months and part of her duties then would have been uh, going to these movies. She was One of her, her techniques was to attend as many sort of film evenings in Soviet embassies as she could, because she used to find them very, very useful ways of not getting secret intelligence, but getting sort of interesting snip tidbits from, from the people that would be there. And in this particular case, uh, this sort of colonel was sitting beside her, breathing, as she said, what the British called at the time, Stalin's breath aftershave, to give an idea what they thought of that. <laughs> and, and he was going on about, about, about how the Russians had won the Second World War entirely on their own, uh, while the British more or less sort of sat back drinking cocoa. And <laughs> she wasn't going to take that from anybody. <laughs> and uh, she said some, something like, my dear man, said, when you were cozying up to Hitler, uh, we were having our cities bombed off the face of the earth, and she lectured him. So she was good at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then he goes and runs off. I mean, she yeah. she knew how to take care of herself. She it was did, pretty yeah. great. Yeah. She yeah, she did, yeah. Her final intel assignment is overseeing the Western Hemisphere. And when I got to that point in the book, you'll understand, I thought, well, we don't think anything particularly exciting happens here in the Western Hemisphere. But it turns out, fortunately, Daphne Park wasn't thinking that way because the Argentines start threatening the Falkland Islands. The invasion takes place after she retired. But what steps did she take and what 
tools that she put in place that ultimately helped liberate those islands in the South Atlantic. Yeah, she was she was very alert and very cognizant. And her responsibilities, if you like, were the intelligence from, from the Americas. As far as from the United States concerned, that was a liaison job, obviously. And then there would have been some intelligence activity in Central and South America. And she was concerned about the Argentines. They had sort of threatened about in the sort of 78, 79, they had threatened to invade the Falklands. And that alerted her. And she instructed uh, one of her people in her stations to build really close relationships with the people that they could. And she also uh, installed uh, emergency uh, radio communications so that if the embassies were shut down in a war between Argentina and the United Kingdom, or effectively not a war between the countries, but over the Falklands, that they would still have the ability to transmit secret intelligence from the region. And that's one of the things that they did. She was very prescient that way. She could see round corners. She has success at Somerville, and then it's time to sort of go on. Her next challenge, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher appoints Daphne Park to the BBC Board of Governors. And that's interesting because you talk a little bit about how this wasn't so strange to have an intelligence person there at the BBC. But what was the relationship between these two strong women? Well, it was the relationship, and they were more than just two strong women. I think they were two women who would have shared a very substantial worldview. Neither of them would be described as feminists in that sense, but both of them would have been very determined uh, that they would get their due and that they would not be held back by virtue of their gender. They might have been inclined to see things a little bit black and white uh, rather than see all the shades of grey. Uh, but that might depend on your, your interpretation of it. But they would have had a strong worldview, very anti-Soviet, very concerned about the Russians. And that never left Daphne, even after the end of the Cold War. And strong uh, conservative politics. So they were quite similar in many respects. Okay, you've given generously of your time to me today, but let me squeeze in one final question. Daphne Park obviously is no longer with us. She passed away, when was it? 2010. 2010. So what can young people, particularly young women, learn from Daphne Park's legacy today? I think that there are still challenges uh, facing women in many fields. I think that she had this extraordinary ability never to give up. She was so persistent, it's just not true. She would never accept a first or a second or even a third refusal. And that is one thing that I would I would sort of think could be learned from her. She did try to see the best in people as well. She tried to believe that people were essentially good and decent. And, and she tried always to see that in them. And they're probably two of the things that she could carry on. An essential decency. And she was a very decent proper, honorable person who would never take no for an answer. Well, Patty Hayes, it's never easy to write a book about people who keep secrets. So thank you so much for doing that hard work of uncovering Daphne Park's story. Thank you for never taking no for an answer, because I'm sure it was not easy to get through to some of these sources or even Daphne Park herself. Thank you for joining me all the way from Dublin to share Queen of Spies. And I hope next time you enjoy your pint that you'll raise one to me because I wish I was there. Thank you very much, Dean. Again, the book is Queen of Spies, Daphne Park, Britain's Cold War Spymaster. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase the book at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even bookmark our URL for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost to you. And the money helps keep us in spy gadgets. 
Once more, thanks to Patty Hayes for joining me all the way from Dublin, Ireland, and for introducing us to Britain's top female spy during the key years of the Cold War. Please remember to visit him at pattyhayes.com. It's worth the trip. And you can let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next week for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. So, until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening, and happy spying. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.